The savings rock when you find a new way to roll. Like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, commuter connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Honoré Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These, a show about difficult conversations and uneasy coalitions. I have friend of the pod, Jamil Smith, on the show today. He is going to help me answer a question from a listener about language, about inclusive language and the word guys versus, I don't know, what else What else is there besides guys? Uh, Jamil is going to help me figure that out. But first, I'm going to talk to James Risen. You may know his name. He is a best-selling author, former New York Times reporter, Pulitzer winner. He is now the Intercept's senior national security correspondent and the director of First Look Media's Press Freedom Defense Fund. I am excited to have him on the show because he will help highlight a relationship that perhaps people listening don't think of as being uneasy, and that's a relationship between liberals and the press. Uh, we, I think, tend to take for granted the idea that the liberal progressive types are more friendly to freedom of the press than Republicans. But James Risen has a very important story to tell about that not being necessarily the case. So, James Risen, coming right up. So, James, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, I am actually really excited to have you on because I confess that my favorite kinds of friends like these shows aren't about the coalitions where the reasons why we might doubt each other are obvious. Mm -hmm. I love it when we talk about the relationships and coalitions that don't seem problematic, but actually are. Uh And I think you're going to problematize some people's relationships here. (laughs) Uh, That's my goal. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think there are a lot of people listening have a lot of, you know, hashtag resistance listeners. Um, (laughs) And I consider myself aligned with with those folks. Uh Um, But I think you're here to tell us a story about the dangers of getting too excited about who your new allies are. Well, I guess that's part of the story. Uh, I hadn't (laughs) thought of it that way. I was just, you know, I was just telling my story, basically. Well, yes. Uh, and it's a fascinating story, really long piece um, in The Intercept. Uh, my life as a New York Times reporter in the shadow of a war on terror. And the, but the part that I kind of want to zoom in on has to do with the relationship between uh, journalists and the government. Yeah. Uh, the hashtag resistance folks, you know, like to talk about the dire and unprecedented threat that Trump poses to the free press. But your story, you know, reminds us that that threat is both precedented and was getting pretty dire before Trump came along. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, that's uh, a lot of a lot of people uh, didn't understand when I became a critic of the Obama administration's uh, press freedom uh, approach to press freedom uh, because uh, I was living <laughs> I was living it, and a lot of other people just didn't understand why I was so uh, vocal and critical of them. Um, But in my case and in a lot of other cases, they were as bad as any administration in American history. 
And in fact, they prosecuted more whistleblowers than all previous administrations combined. And in my case, um, you know, they came after me for seven years. And the consequence of the legal campaign they had against me was to destroy the uh, uh, what's called the reporter's privilege in uh, the most important uh, region of the country in the in Virginia and Washington, the the Washington D.C. area, and um, so it, they've had a major impact on the ability of reporters. Uh, to do an investigative reporting. And um, I think Trump will probably take advantage of it. You center the story a little further back than that, which I think is worth getting into, which is you know, so the erosion of norms around press protection and about what the government will and won't prosecute actually uh, kind of came into focus or started to be, get eroded, I should say, um, around Patrick Fitzgerald's investigation of the Valerie Plame leak. Uh, you you pick up that thread as being a place where people kind of lost sight of what that relationship maybe should be because liberals really embraced it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, covering the CIA. I started covering the CIA in the mid-90s. And um, it was, you know, it was, uh, there were a lot of leaks and a lot of uh, stories that I did and other people did back then that involved classified information. But there was this, uh, for, for during that time period and for about 30 years, uh, there was this unspoken understanding between the government and the press that the government, you know, when you as a reporter broke a story that had classified information in it, uh, the government would, would protest and get mad and make public statements saying what a terrible thing it was. But then they wouldn't do anything about it. And they, they would announce a leak investigation, but then they wouldn't really do anything. And uh, it was really like, uh, you know, that scene in Casablanca where everybody's shocked that gambling's going on. And it was uh, understood by everybody that, you know, the government would really never go after reporters or their sources in any serious way. And in exchange for that, the press would work with the government, negotiate with the government when there were stories that the government felt, you know, were sensitive. And the editors and reporters would talk to the government and uh, sometimes hold stories or sometimes take certain things out of stories. And so this was the, that was the, the mutual understanding that was never written down and never, nobody ever admitted to it publicly, but that was the, the way things were. You might call it a norm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Patrick Fitzgerald, when he was appointed as a special counsel uh, in the uh, Valerie Plame case, you know, he didn't have to abide by those norms. The, there, was, there were attorney general guidelines put in place back in the 70s and 80s uh, on how the Justice Department dealt with uh, the media and reporters. And since he was a special counsel and it didn't report to the attorney general, he didn't have to abide by those. So he didn't have to get approval from anybody else to subpoena reporters. And he decided to start doing it. And uh, he went after, you know, as you, you remember, you know, the parade of reporters going in and out of the courthouse during the 
Valerie Plem case to either testify or try not to testify or to fight it. And uh, ultimately, lots of reporters uh, cooperated with Fitzgerald, uh, and only one, Judy Miller, agreed to go to, went to jail rather than talk to him. Uh, and so that whole process, as, as I said, it was seen at the time, you know, we got, you know, liberals loved it. We got to go after Bush. We got to go after uh, Cheney and and all that. Um, and the, the plain leak case became the surrogate for the political battle over Iraq. Uh, and nobody realized, well, long-term, this is going to have a terrible effect on press freedom. And what it did was, I'm convinced, is that every junior prosecutor in the Justice Department looked and saw, oh, Pat Fitzgerald is becoming a star. He's like the rock star of the Justice Department by putting reporters in jail. And everybody, I, I'm convinced everybody there said, I want to be the next Pat Fitzgerald. And I think it's worth like digging into some of what people might, I don't know, see as potential parallels here, which is that, of course, this prosecution took place under Bush, not under Obama. Obama right. took advantage of of some of the precedents that were set here. Right. Um, but this was under the Bush administration, which liberals, of course, including myself, were pretty, mm -hmm. you know, adamantly resisting, let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're right. Like um, Valerie Plame was the uh, CIA. Uh, was she an officer or? Yeah, she was a, I, yeah, she was a CIA, CIA case officer. officer. Yeah. Who was married to a crit, a Joe Wilson, who was a critic of the Iraq War. The leaking of her identity um, was framed and seen as a retribution uh, for his uh, being opposed to the war. And right. that's how it became a proxy fight about the war. Right. But I remember, like, I remember, like, uh, I was at Wonkette at the time, and we wrote kind of mockingly, but because we were kind of taking up the, the you know, meme of the moment, um, like, people, like, found Patrick Fitzgerald, like, sexy. <laughs> Like right. he was being written right. about. And yeah, I don't he mean, even later went on Whose Line Is It Anyway on NPR. <laughs> and um, he, there were people talking about Fitzmas, you know, right. online. He had his right. own memes. Right. Um, and I don't know, this starts to feel real familiar, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now I don't know if uh, it's be an interesting question whether, well, I guess Mueller does have, he is independent of Sessions uh, and who is more or less supposedly recused himself. Uh, and um, so, you know, be careful what you wish for, I guess, is the question, is the uh, thing to remember. So, but let's roll back again to just the immediate aftermath of the Fitzgerald case or or what you think, it, how it, you think it helps sort of shape new ideas, you know, mm -hmm. among those in the government. Um, that happened during the Bush administration. Uh, right. But the Obama administration and your case started during the Bush administration. Right. Uh, can you briefly like tell us? Yeah. I mean, I uh, just the, to make a long story short, I, I was, I wrote a book that came out in 2006 that included, um, you know, it was about the war. It was about the um, war on terror, the post 9-11 uh, war on terror and the CIA and the Bush administration. And, um, it was called State of War. And uh, in that book, I had a lot of uh, stories uh, that were, you know, I broke a lot of ground and were based on a lot of classified. I mean, I 
I think it's fair to say now it was based on classified information and um, some of it anyway. And um, the uh, government came after me. Uh, and in 2008, uh, I uh, was subpoenaed by the uh, Bush administration, by the Justice Department, to testify at a grand jury uh, about my who gave me some of this information. And uh, I refused and my lawyers moved to quash the subpoena. Yeah, and that began, you know, what turned out to be like a seven-year fight between me and the government. And in case people, you know, are, are rusty on their math, that means it continued well on into the Obama administration. And that was actually a surprise to you. You write in your piece, you you fully expected, oh, Democratic administration coming in. You know, right. I, I guess there is this cultural bias, this cultural connection that kind of connects the press and Democrats being more friendly with each other. Right. And you thought that that this would go away under the Obama administration, but. Right. And I think the judge did too, because, you know, they subpoenaed me in like January 2008, the Bush administration. And, you know, there were a whole bunch of procedural back and forth. And if you've ever been in court or had anything to do with a court proceeding, you know that they take forever. And um, so this was dragging on and getting close to the election. And uh, I think that, I mean, she's never said this, but I think the judge kind of kind of slowed, slow rolled things to see what the new administration would do. Because after a whole bunch of procedural things in 2008, then like the whole case went silent for a few months. And then the election happened. And then like, I think it was like in June or July of 2009 with Obama now in office, the judge um, put out like a very brief little uh, ruling or statement. I don't know what you call it, saying, uh, I see that the grand jury in this case has now expired. And as a result, I believe the subpoena of Mr. Risen is moot. And I give the government... 10 days to decide uh, whether they want to reapply for a subpoena. So essentially, she was sending a message to the Obama administration, you have a chance now to drop this and make it go away. Uh, and I think she fully expected them to do that. And instead, they immediately came back and said, no, 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 we want to make keep this going. And... Um, they, in fact, went to the court to say, no, the Bush administration subpoena should still be in effect. Mm. And uh, she said, no, you got to get a new subpoena authorized by the new attorney general uh, in order to do this. And so they said, sure, okay, and they did it. And uh, then they kept re-subpoena. You know, she kept quashing their subpoenas after that, and they kept reapplying them. And your piece lays out very clearly, like, the reasons why— the Bush administration might be unfriendly, mm -hmm. you know, to reporters and to those who leak. And it they found a lot of the stuff that you reported embarrassing, right? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, and they should be, in my opinion, embarrassed. Right. But the Obama administration, they were coming in brand new. This was These were not their mistakes to get embarrassed by. Right. Why did they come in so hot? Excellent question. That's <laughs> what I, I was. I was shocked that they did this. And uh, it was the first sign to me that the war on terror had become bipartisan. And mm -hmm. I think people have ever since 
people have misunderstood uh, Obama's legacy on national security issues. I think he's much more he was much more conservative on national security than liberals wanted to admit. Uh, he extended most of Obama uh, Bush's uh, counterterrorism and and uh, uh, other you know related national security policies. And while you know he finally got out of Iraq, he did so really only when the uh, at the time that the Bush administration had agreed to get out of Iraq. And so I think people have uh, I think historians are going to have to grapple with uh, Obama's national security legacy. And I think it's going to be much different uh, in history than people who were his supporters wanted ever wanted to admit. I used to say, and I still believe this, that the only difference between the Bush people and the Obama people on national security was that the uh, Obama people felt bad about it. (laughs) I would posit that feeling bad about it counts for something. Um, Not much, uh, but it can have well, actually, what feeling bad about it can do is sometimes cause people to talk to reporters, let's say. Right. Because um, actually, one of the interesting parts of your story, going back to the Bush administration, is that people felt bad about the massive surveillance program that they were right. doing. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what what uh, we when we found out about the NSA domestic spine program, it was because people believed it was illegal and unconstitutional. And um, whether it was illegal and unconstitutional became like a central issue in the debate between uh, me and Eric Lischblau on one side and uh, and the editors on the other on whether to publish the story. And I actually want people to read your, your story. So I'm not going to ask you to get into too much detail about the whole, you know, mm-hmm. saga uh, of you getting this story and the back and forth with the New York Times about whether to publish it. Mm-hmm. Um, suffice to say, at one point, you felt this story was so important. Um, the Stellar Wind story, if people may have heard of that program, this is mass, uh, you know, not court approved or, you know, uh, overseen by a court surveillance on everyday Americans. Right. Uh, just vacuuming up shit. Right. You believe this was so important, you were ready to get fired. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, they had, uh, the if, they, pa- if the Times didn't publish it, I should say. That was, you were, you were going to get yeah. this out one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. I, they, you know, make a long story short, they had, they had killed or held a bunch of my stories and then they killed and held, and they killed this one. And I just decided, um, I was going to put it in a book. And, uh, so after, you know, after they had killed it, I put it in a book. And then after I'd written the manuscript, I told them it was going to be in my book and that they should publish it. And um, that led to uh, a lot of tense meetings. <laughs> you, played a, you played a very serious game of chicken yeah. uh, with both your editors and the administration. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was an, uh, the most trauma- intensive period of my life. And yeah. which is why I wrote this story now. I felt, you know, I just left the New York Times and I felt like it was time to tell the whole story. I will give a brief spoiler alert um, that the Times does not come off well. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think it, today, you know, retelling. I think at the end I say, I think this, 
at the end of the piece, I said, I think this has ushered in a new era at the Times. In, and I think I, I truly believe that, that it helped change the culture of the place to a degree and helped uh, usher in a new era where they're – today they're much less willing to uh, give in to government requests to kill or hold stories. I know that for a fact, that they're not as willing as they used to be. I'm glad to hear that. Um, I, I I hope that that is true. I know it. You know, I I left in August, but I know it was true uh, prior to that. So I, I shouldn't. I I you saying that makes me hopeful. Maybe is a better way to frame <laughs> that. I am. Yeah. I am. Yeah. I am glad to hear it. No, and the New York Times is a great institution, and uh, but I think every great institution has stories about it that um, should be told. I mean, the tr- full truth. Uh, of the New York Times should be told just like we tell the full truth of the federal government or of uh, any institution. I'm curious what you make of what's happening, you know, in this in this cultural moment where we do have our hashtag resistance and we <laughs> do have outlets, you know, such as the New York Times and CNN and the Washington Post uh, branding themselves as oppositional, mm-hmm. right? Well, I mean, it's a little dangerous for the press to do that, uh, mainly because um, it feeds into the – it tends to feed into the, uh, the the view of the – of conservatives that the press is biased. Um, and it, But the press today is in a very difficult position with Trump because he is uh, – he is completely breaking down or ignoring all norms. He doesn't care about, at least as far as I can tell, he doesn't care about any traditions of um, uh, in the United States government or the way that this republic has operated for over 200 years. He's an incredibly dangerous figure, uh, and he only gets away with it because he has a base that still believes uh, that there are institutions out there to get them, uh, that the press is somehow against them. And so on the one hand, as the, the press has to find a way to explain how out of the norm Trump is and how there is no way under the old formulas of the, uh, you know, old news norms to explain what's going on, but at the others, but on the other side, how do you do that in a way that doesn't just lead you into, you know, a uh, you know a, a narrower audience? So I, you know, I it's it's a very difficult, very difficult dilemma for the press, and I um, I'm not sure I know the answer to how to deal with it. Destiny is calling. It says. You need a new website, which is a real specific thing for Destiny to say. It might also be saying other things that are not as specific. Um, But if you do need a new website, if you're heeding Destiny's call, I suggest you make it with Squarespace. Squarespace happens to be uh, the service that I use to make my website. Please don't judge Squarespace necessarily by my website, which is uh, woefully out of date, like I think 99.9% of freelance writers' websites are. They are the ones who make it easy to update, and I should be doing that. 
you can create a beautiful website for whatever it is uh, that you're passionate about or that you want to do as a business. You can uh, just do a cool idea. You can showcase your work. You can publish. You can sell products. You can promote your online business or your physical business. You're actually brick and mortar business. And uh, you can announce an upcoming special event or project. Those are all things you can do with Squarespace. And again, they do make it look easy. And the templates they offer are beautiful. Uh, Again, I used one. I cannot uh, emphasize how easy this was. I came of age in the era when uh, you had to actually hand code HTML. And I was mentally preparing myself for having to do that again. And I did not. Uh, You just kind of drag and drop and... It looks professional and gorgeous. Everything is optimized right out of the box, too, for uh, mobile, I guess, as they say these days. There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. If you want to try out Squarespace, go to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you are ready to launch, you can use the offer code FRIENDS and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Again, that is squarespace.com for a free trial. Offer code FRIENDS for 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stevon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. I also wanted to ask you kind of about the, about the state of leaking uh-huh. uh, in D.C., uh, because, you know, you talked about the norm that existed, it sounds like all throughout the Cold War and, and a little bit past that, pre-9-11, let's say, at the very mm-hmm. least, uh-huh. uh, that um, leaking was kind of a part of the culture. And this is also when I was growing up <laughs> as a young journalist, uh-huh. that, that's how I understood it as well, that it was a self-regulating feature of the ecosystem. Right. That it was a way, yes, you were being used as a reporter. It was your responsibility to know how you were being used. Right. Um, and it often, you, there were maybe, you know, intramural battles taking place. Sometimes it had to do with people feeling guilty. Um, but it more or less was expected to be part of the ecosystem. It was understood yeah. that this is a thing that's going to happen. Right. Everyone knows the rules. Right. 
then, you know, and you're telling the Fitzgerald investigation happened, which led to this celebration of Fitzgerald, which led to an erosion of the idea that leaks are, uh, that leakers should be protected. Right. And that journalists have a special um, uh, obligation to them. And and now we have just the word leak. Right, right. And not talking about the dossier, have to get that in there. Ha, ha. <laughs> no, um, it's a, yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's a leak has become a pejorative in a way yeah. that, uh, you know, people, you know, they, they, we've criminalized this whole process of uh, journalism. And I think it's, that to me is incredibly dangerous and it's, uh, and it, but it didn't start with Trump and that's the, Trump is going to take advantage of it in, and he's, I'm sure he's going to run, run with it as fast as he can. And once he, once he figures out how to do it, I mean, I think right now the best thing uh, we have going is the fact that Trump equates leaks with stories about him. He doesn't understand that there's a difference between somebody saying Trump is a moron and a, uh, you know, a national security story that, uh, you know, involves uh, classified information. The Justice Department, unless, unless we blow through the entire legal processes of the United States, which is possible, uh, we're not going to prosecute people who anonymously who who work at the White House who not anonymously say Trump is an idiot. But there can be prosecutions of, of reporters or sources who talk about classified information. And one of the real dangers is if Sessions and Trump get together and figure out how to combine the two of those things and to use some fashion of a leak investigation by claiming there's some classified information involved to get the people who are really just personal enemies of Trump. Oh, I, I, I can see that forming actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to take the uh, form of Trump's assertion that, you know, the King is the state right. and that if you are saying something bad about him, you are mm-hmm. somehow, you are somehow destabilizing our national security situation. Yeah. Well, then you've got a dictatorship. Well, yes, <laughs> but he, he, Basically, has already made that argument. I mean, he's not quite smart enough to put it maybe that concisely. Right. Um, but he's well, it reminds made- me of that scene in House of or that part of House of Cards where uh, they go after the they set up the editor to go after some uh, uh, cyber thing. And I don't know if you remember this, where the the editor of the newspaper who was investigating the death of his reporter, and then they set him up with. Uh, to go do a cyber hack and then they prosecute him. Mm-hmm. It was, I always thought that was like, that's really, <laughs> that's something that FBI could do. <laughs> wow. Well, okay. I've always thought, you know, I'm of uh, the opinion. I, I always like the line that, uh, you know, people in DC like to think that house of cards tells their story, but really it's veep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I look to veep more for, to understand the Trump administration, but thank you for pointing out um, yeah. a place where we can maybe unfortunately find some, some frightening indications of what might happen uh, in yeah. House of Cards. No. Yeah, though, Veep is a great show. But I love that show too. <laughs> um, I I also wonder, one of the things that, that you um, talk about a little bit in your story, but is an, 
kind of important uh, aspect or important part of the context is all of this took place over years and years. Yeah. Uh, and I don't just mean the legal battle. I mean, your stories developed over years. You yeah. worked on individual stories for, you know, the stellar wind stories, two years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things that I worry about is getting lost mm -hmm. uh, in journalism today is like uh, people make one phone call and then they tweet about it. And, uh, or they don't even make the phone call. <laughs> they read something <laughs> online and they tweet about it. And uh, that's, I, you know, there's still really good investigative reporters working at major institutions, uh, major news organizations. And the New York Times has some great investigative reporters. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, the press is, uh, you know, apart from those people, the press is kind of going down this road of uh, really quick takes that uh, maybe they're satisfying for five minutes, but uh, they don't really uh, tell you much. And they don't... Uh, you know, they don't really inform anybody of anything. And that's, I think, one of the problems with the press today. One of the reasons people have lost trust is that we put out, you know, we, we, we distribute so much crap every day without checking it out uh, and then expect, we're basically expecting readers to do, to do the editing process today. <laughs> and a, and a have, way, have you read Fire and Fury? Yeah, just curious. <laughs> they, that book actually expected readers to do the copy editing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you know, I I can understand why people would say, well, you know, why should I believe you? You know, mm -hmm. so I, I think you're right. I mean, when we talk about the degradation of the term leak and and what it means, or the act of telling a reporter something off the uh -huh. record, uh -huh. <laughs> um is just that currency is so debased, yeah. right? It just doesn't mean anything to, to do that. Like it used to be, I remember again, so baby reporter, if someone told me something off the record, I was so excited. Mm -hmm. That was something you didn't do that often. Right. You know, uh, or actually I shouldn't say off the record. If they told me something off the record that I could put on the record, that part, like uh -huh. off the record, whatever. But if they told me something that had been off the record that I was now going to be able to use in some way, mm -hmm. like that just was a, was something that uh, it, I mean, maybe you were just better at this than I was. <laughs> no, I've just done, I've done it for a long time. I'm old. But it was it considered, a, a, you know, it's a, a thing, it's, a, it's a, a thing to value. It had value because right. it didn't happen that often. It was usually something important. Right. And now you're right. It's just a leak is just a thing that you don't necessarily want your name attached to. Right, right. But I mean, there are still there are still really important leaks. Oh, uh, oh, sure. And um, but what we are demanding of readers is to make is to make informed choices that they didn't have to make before. Right. Uh, and that is we're asking a lot of readers to decide. Okay, which which news organization, which reporters, which books should I believe? Which TV shows? And so there's no. You know, we shouldn't be surprised that a lot of people love very simplistic alternatives like Fox News. And I just want to make the connection. I, I think there is one between this debasing of, of 
leaking, mm-hmm. uh, making it into something just blind gossip items, mm-hmm. uh, and the pace of news. Yeah, which is that you know we have a news cycle that's built around the last nasty thing someone said. Right. Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I will reveal how old I am, which is I got into journalism in 1978 and I was a newspaper reporter in a town in Indiana. And for most of my career, starting then, you had one deadline and that was right. at night. You had all day to figure out what a story was. And um, you make a bunch of calls and... You work on the story, and almost invariably, the story changed from the morning till the night. And it wasn't the same story that you thought it was at first. And so you only published the story that included all of the information that you got by the end of the day. That doesn't happen anymore. Now we write five or six versions of the same story in 24 hours. And so you're like, you're turning these readers into copy editors. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the copy editor, <laughs> copy editor used to be there saying, wait a second, that's not what you said five minutes ago, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's just, I think we've, I think that's a fundamental problem is, you know, you, you can't turn back the clock and get rid of the internet, obviously, or cable news or anything, but it, we have to admit that it's, seriously degraded the news process. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to let you go before we touch back on the substance of your, you know, major uh, reporting here on NSA surveillance, which is that FISA was in the news today. Mm-hmm. Right. This week. Uh, those provisions, the so-called 702 provisions, were reapproved on a bipartisan vote. Right. Yeah, I mean, basically what, what happened was after our story ran, uh, Congress Congress decided to uh, – they realized that what the Bush administration had been doing was uh, in violation of uh, FISA. And so in 2008, they enacted what was called the FISA Amendments Act of 2008, which – Essentially, allowed the Bush allowed the the NSA to do what they had been doing under the uh, Bush administration, except now it was uh, covered by law. Yeah, they just changed the rules. Right, they changed the rules to to let the government do what it was secretly doing. And then after Edward Snowden released the documents that that really was it was about the same program that we wrote about. It was just provided a lot more detail. Mm -hmm and um, showed how much it had expanded under Obama. Uh, The uh, Congress, again, tweaked the FISA Amendments Act of 2008 to limit a couple other things. And so every couple of years, they have to reauthorize it and tweak it. And that's what they've been doing. But it's the same law that they passed right after our stories. Uh, It's the FISA Amendments Act of 2008 reauthorization. You were ready to end your career, at least at the times, you know, over this story about mass surveillance. Are you surprised that Americans don't seem to care that much? <laughs> uh, I mean, some people do care very much. Yeah, there, there is a yeah. group of people who care very much, and I'm, I am so grateful mm-hmm. for them. Right. 
So I shouldn't say, shouldn't say Americans don't care. And I also think there are people who would care more if they knew more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you always hear this saying, well, I have nothing to hide. Well, right. everybody but in has general, something that to hide. seems to be the response. Yeah. Everybody, what, what I always say to them is, is everybody has something to hide. And uh, uh, I always point to one of my favorite movies is The, the Lives of Others. Or if you ever saw that, it's about uh, East Germany in the Cold War and um, this artist, uh, writer and artist, uh, gets sideways with a top uh, communist official. And so he orders uh, round-the-clock surveillance of the guy and it destroys the guy's life. And yeah, that's, that's the end result. I mean, I don't care who you are. Everybody has something to hide. And um, that's if if you don't stop this, you know, if you don't if have limits on mass surveillance, that's where you'll end up. And, you know, there's the civil libertarian analysis, which is, you know, the right to privacy is one of the fundamental rights of democracy. Yeah. Like without without privacy, you don't have democracy. Right. Like without the ability to, to make your own decisions freely. Right. Um, I mean, I you, my we I don't we yeah. lost what makes us us. Yeah. I saw my role as just disclosing what was going on and then letting the government have a debate. I didn't want to mm. worry about the impact of the stories. I just felt like if, you know, our job was to disclose what the government was doing and then let the people decide. And the people through Congress decided. And um, But they had that debate because— uh, we wrote the story. And so I feel good about that. I want to ask you about the future. Mm-hmm. You've alluded to, you know, concerns you have about the Trump administration and how they might treat the press. Right. I'm wondering if you also have concerns about this fetishization um, that the hashtag resistance has, this newfound love for the deep state, for <laughs> people like Mueller mm-hmm. and Comey, right. uh, since it does look a lot like the way that liberals celebrated Patrick Fitzgerald. You know, that's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought that much about that, but you're probably right. I mean, I think there's, I don't know. I mean, I guess my question is, I haven't really looked into it that much, but is that true? Is the, is the, uh, are liberals invest, heavily invested in that? In the same way, do you think? Oh God, you have not been online much lately. <laughs> I, I wow, you not are not very online. I, I don't go. I don't. I'm not on Twitter or Facebook. So. <laughs> that explains everything. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh, uh, my friend, my new friend, uh, I am here to report that yes, uh, liberals <laughs> are doing the exact same stuff. Uh, um, the same, even kind of like uh, proclaiming that Comey and Mueller are literally like sex symbols um <laughs> that there is there is like you know robert Mueller fan fiction out oh, there God. um and also you do see uh in some court not just corners of the internet you see i think they see it pretty openly democrats embracing um the tools of the deep state you mm-hmm. know they and defending places like the cia and the fbi in a way that seems really contextless to me yeah yeah. Well. Like I, I, yeah, I always want to say like, so I've come from a military family. Mm-hmm. I believe in those institutions, uh, the CIA and the FBI. I think that they're 
parts. They are, a, they need to be part of our democracy. They have their place. Right. But come on, <laughs> like, their histories should give us pause. Right. Anytime that any of those, either the FBI or the CIA or the NSA, uh, get involved politically in any way, it's really dangerous. Because mm-hmm. you may like them politically now, but if they start thinking it's okay for us to get involved in politics, then there's not going to be much difference between us and Pakistan. And where the ISI basically runs things. That seems like a that's a great place to stop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would be curious if you have any immediate thoughts for our listeners about being good news consumers. Because you said, like, you know, we've outsourced this. As journalists, we've kind of almost outsourced the editing. Like, do yeah, you... Yeah, yeah. Um, Is that a longer conversation we should have some other time, or...? Uh, well, maybe, but I think you just have to be more brand aware. You know, like you would... Uh, you know, you pay more for... Uh, one of the well, One of the big problems is that Nobody is willing to pay for news anymore. Yeah. Uh, and so that's made it difficult for really high-quality journalism to continue. Uh, but I also think that uh, you just have to recognize what the source of the information is and think through that. And most people don't. And I think that's the other big problem to me, that social media is like uh, – the devil's handyman because uh, we're most people now see a read of stories on Facebook or Twitter. And so how are they supposed to know where they originally came from? Um, I mean, I guess it'll say on the story, but it's easy to kind of hide and people do are, are purposefully misleading about where stories come from. I think, know. I think Facebook and, and Twitter, all the social media companies, have a real obligation to begin to invest in news, the news business. I think they should, in order to deal with the problems we now have, I think they should create large in-house news organizations like the New York Times or the Washington yeah. Post and put out high-quality news instead of just be conveyor belts for crap the way they are now. Yes. Well, from your lips to Mark Zuckerberg's ears— Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I know, Um, but what are they going to, how many, how many, okay. How many yachts does Mark Zuckerberg need? Yeah. Oh, I I mean. Okay. What is he going to do with a hundred billion dollars? You are not getting an argument from me at all. I mean, I think, and, but I, I worry that that the kind of, um, proactive action that you're talking about is going to come too late in this process. Yeah. Well, Um, I think to me, that is the first major step that has to take place in America today in order to save our uh, press freedom and our republic is the social media giants have to step up and start taking greater responsibility for their role in society. I mean, they won't even tell Congress who buys their ads, right? Yeah. I mean, like, but they are, okay. they are basically <laughs> vampires on the, on the information ecosystem, on the news mm-hmm. ecosystem. They have sucked out all of the ad revenue from news organizations and left them basically made hundreds of billions of dollars and are doing nothing to educate the American people. 
Yeah. I mean, again, like no argument for me. I, I, I mean, I guess this is worth talking about because this is how things change, right? Like we, you know, if change. you had, if you had like, you know how much it would cost to buy a major news organization and set up a major news organization, you could do it for $200 million. Yeah. Google, Less than it costs Google to run for and pre- Facebook for are worth hundreds of billions of dollars. Yeah. But instead, they're just going to run people. Well, I said less than it costs to run for president. Instead, they're just going to run people for president. Like, we're going to see the yeah, well. Oprah, Mark Zuckerberg ticket. But it was great talking to you. And maybe we will have you back to talk more about, you know, news consuming. Sure. Because um, I think that's something uh, doesn't get talked about enough. Yeah. Uh, and is actually, obviously, as you said, like more and more important. But thank you so much. Sure. Um, I will email you about uh, nuclear war <laughs> okay. Uh, fiction. Okay. And people I might want to talk to. Okay. So... A uh, perennial New Year's resolution for me, I make too many all the time. Uh, one of them that I make every year is to drink more water. Uh, the other one is to read more and learn more. Uh, that is actually relatively easy for me to keep, unlike the water one, because I'm one of those people that hates water. I can't explain why. Maybe you're like me, maybe you're not. Uh, but I do love learning. And the Great Courses Plus actually makes it very easy to pursue learning. Uh, and they make it fun. Uh, they have hundreds of courses online on everything from, you know, hobbies like photography or cooking to things that are a little more esoteric, like philosophy or economics, or something that is both esoteric, but also in the news. And that is the Supreme Court, which is what I am listening to right now. We all have an idea of, of what the Supreme Court is. And maybe even we think we know how it came to be this very prestigious and very powerful institution, but it was not always prestigious. It was not always powerful. There are specific things that happened in American history that created it uh, the way it is today. Um, and of course, as you know, it is incredibly influential, not just as an institution, but in the way that it is a political football. Donald Trump was elected in part because of the Supreme Court being what it is. If you want context for that, you can get it through the Great Courses Plus, which you can see or uh, listen to on your TV, on your laptop, on your tablet or smartphone. If you are a podcast listener, I imagine that might be one way you want to do it. That is the way that I experience the Great Courses Plus, which is on audio. But if you're a more visual person, then you can do it that way too. If you are interested in a free trial, as one of my listeners of the Great Courses Plus, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash friends. This is maybe a little complicated. I have actually screwed this up a couple times because there's both a the and a plus in there. It is the great courses plus dot com slash friends for a free trial. I love it when an advertiser comes on board that I'm already a fan on. It makes it easier to read these ads, of course. It makes it a pleasure to do business with them. The advertiser that I was already a fan of that I'm about to introduce you to is Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix is a personal styling service. Once a month or every other month or however often you decide, they will send you a box of stuff that is catered especially to you. Usually what they do is they look at your Instagram account or your Pinterest account and kind of get a sense of your style. You can also correspond with your personal stylist and they will send you uh, a series of outfits um, in a box. It's uh, I'm gesturing how big the box is with my hands right now. You cannot see that. Um, 
And it's about five items, and they sometimes mix and match. Most of the time, they mix and match. And again, they're geared to your style. I like it uh, to when they push me a little bit personally, and you can ask your stylist to do that. Uh, and it is all of the fun of shopping and none of the drudgery. That is the thing for me. I love new clothes. I hate going to buy new clothes. And catalog shopping just isn't really that fun either. So this is like curated, cool new stuff. You have a lot of parameters you can play with on this. Um, Your personal style, of course, your budget, your lifestyle, um, whether or not you have anything coming up in your life that you want them to address, uh, a trip or an occasion. Uh, I had them uh, pick out some clothes for vacation for me once. It was really fun to have that kind of specific thing as a goal. And you can get Stitch Fix yourself with an offer, especially for my listeners, that is stitchfix.com slash friends. You will get 20% off if you keep all five items in the first box that you get. For my listeners only, go to stitchfix.com slash friends. You can try Stitch Fix and you will get 25% off if you keep all five items in your box. I will tell you that one of the things that I do with Stitch Fix is I schedule it for, let's just say, a time of the month where I know I will be needing a little bit of an uplift. If you have those times of the month yourself, you might want to do the same. Uh, They also have guys' uh, boxes, but um, my advice specifically applies to people who know bad things are coming. Anyway, stitchfix.com slash friends, 25% off if you buy all five items in your first box. So we have a question. It is from Will in LA, and here it is. Hi, Anna. Do you think the term guys has reached gender-neutral status in the language today? As in, hey guys, or you guys. I kind of feel like it has, and I use it all the time, but being a guy myself, I recognize the potential blind spot there. There's not really an easy non-gendered word to sub out, but I don't want to be promoting maleness by default just out of laziness. The way you discuss how the words we use matter on your show has really helped change the way I think about the issue, but at this point, am I overthinking it? Thanks. Will from L.A. I love this question. It is one that I have gotten before. And helping us to answer that question is Jamil Smith. He is a contributing opinion writer for the L.A. Times and a friend of the show. Welcome, Jamil. Hey. So I think you and I have actually had discussions around this kind of issue, around the importance of language. So that is an interesting question. Yes. Uh, so, Will, my neighbor here in Los Angeles, uh, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, do you mind if I go first? Uh, please. As a guy. Hey, as a, as a dude. Yes, because men never get to talk first. <laughs> Anna, it's just I really appreciate the sacrifice. Um, just thank you for making room for male voices in the space. Um, Will, I don't think you're overthinking this. Uh, taking a second to consider gender pronouns and how we center maleness and masculinity. I don't think that's overthinking. That's just thinking. That's just being considerate. So I just want to first, you know, address that part of the question. Now, some suggestions. Uh, Just off the top of my head, there's y'all, if you're from the (laughs) South or from certain parts of the Midwest. Um, There's men and women, or better yet, women and men, if you want to be more specific about it, instead of just saying, hey, guys, uh, you know, well, maybe women and men doesn't work. Maybe just, you know, what's up, folks? Folks. That's a I good am gender a fan. If I may interject, pronoun. I hope you don't mind me interjecting. I hope you still feel heard. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't feel <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I'm, you're not infringing upon my space. Um, but 
Folks is my favorite. In fact, I have on my computer and on my both my phone and my iPad, I have an autocorrect from guys to folks. Whoa. Okay, I need to set that up. Which is, it's funny how much it gets used. It does make me think every single time. I've only had it up like for maybe four or five months. Um, and it does make me think every time, do I mean guys? There are times I mean guys, like when I am talking to my crooked media fellows. Yes. yes. Those are dudes. If there is an assemblage of dudes, (laughs) then guys is fine. Right. (laughs) But if you're talking, say, to, you know, you know, editorial staff at Jezebel, I wouldn't necessarily say guys. I would say, you know, be a little bit more specific. Take take some time to think about who you're addressing. Um, but I, yeah, folks for me is, is a default. I, in fact, our, our, our former editor, the wonderful Dan Fearman used to call it a Jamilism. Uh, it's just to say that I use it too much in columns. I try to at least sneak it in there once or <laughs> once or twice. Um, but I think that, you know, folks is, it's a perfectly comfortable pronoun. Um, it's something that works for anybody that, you know, men, women, non-gender identifying mm-hmm. and, you know, again, it just, it speaks to the, you know, we, we the fact that we both default to folks actually makes me think about this by default part of his question, mm-hmm. which, you know, we operate in this world where so often whiteness is the default or ability is the default or, um, you know, for some people, um, a certain level of income or status is the default. Um, we need to just take a second. It really doesn't require that much effort to think about the fact that not everyone in our audience, when we speak, perhaps, is always going to be someone who's like us. Yeah. And I think that's the real value of having, you know, that uh, autocorrect or even taking that moment to think about it is for all of the reasons you've just laid out. Not just because do you really mean guys when you might be talking to also women or also people that you don't know what gender they prefer to be identified. Uh but yeah, all those other things, because if you do that, if you if you are thinking about guys versus folks, hopefully you're also thinking about that in other contexts. Right. right. And you're just just you're making a conscious decision about, well, who am I talking to? And hopefully also that leads you to think things like, wait a minute, I am talking to a group of all white men. Is that maybe a problem? <laughs> <laughs> or there's all guys literally mm-hmm. on my panel. Maybe that's an issue that I should address. I mean, I think that's exactly it. When you think about the very smallest things um, with regards to gender or with regards to race, even um, all the different ways that we identify, when you think about it, when that becomes a conscious thought, um, you become more conscious of how bigger things uh, operate in that arena. And so you're more conscious of gender discrimination. You're more conscious of Uh, racial discrimination. You're more conscious of things that don't necessarily affect people who look like you. And so, you know, that, that, that is a small step, but the idea that somehow that might be overthinking things is how we get to, you know, we don't get anywhere further than we got, than we are right now. It's, it's a recipe for the status quo when we start thinking that, oh, well, Man, considering gender and pronoun, that's, <laughs> I don't know, man, that's, that's, that's too much. I think, um, I also want to point out that this habit does, you know, start to make you think about other things. And a specific example for me is that I just wrote a column for sci-fi fangirls about the trope of the endless winter in science fiction, since we're, we're having one. Mm. 
Um, and, and it was just about, uh, I pointed out a bunch of different uh, places in science fiction, other genre fiction, where you could find uh, stories set in an endless winter from Narnia uh, to places uh, like The Thing is set in the North Pole. And I kind of did a little like, thought it, a little essay-ish paragraph about why is, what does this mean? Like when an author chooses to set a story in an endless winter, what does that mean? And I started to write something about how, well, winter symbolizes, you know, the death of um, living things. And also if you don't have a spring coming up, that means that, uh, you know, that rebirth is, is put distant. And then I realized, you know what, that is a true kind of symbolism if you are a Northern Hemisphere Westerner. Mm. And that, it, for instance, if you were from Africa, an endless winter might have an entirely different meaning. <laughs> <laughs> or even if you're from California, as I'm finding out. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, like the, the fact that like, yeah, I do think we can talk about like kind of the Western tradition of like what endless winter symbolizes. But it doesn't it very much doesn't mean the same thing if you're from another region. Right. Right. right? Yeah, so, I mean, to me and you, um, you know, being, you know, familiar and, you know, having lived in the Midwest a long time, you know, we get that. It's it's sort of a natural default. But, you know, I, for folks out here, I mean, endless winter might mean 65 degrees, <laughs> <laughs> which which I'm finding isn't too bad. I, I'm finding that I quite like it. I, might, I have to add. Well, I want to also ask you, you know, something I, uh, from what I recall, you are still a black man. I am. Uh, I am. That has cool. not changed. Not changed. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize that what it feels like when you have uh, your identity assumed in that way that if you say guys, like I, I would actually say as a woman, when someone uses guys, it's so normalized that I don't even really necessarily feel excluded by it consciously. Mm. Mm. But I'm wondering like what kind, I mean, I, I don't even want to, I'm not going to use the word microaggression. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't mind that word actually. I think it's I think it's a perfectly applicable word, and yeah. you know I think that it's used to describe something very specific. So that's it's perfectly fine. I mean I think that I think to some degree as a black man I do come into contact with the kinds of things that Will was worried about from a racial angle. Mm-hmm. So I think it makes me at least I would like to think so. It makes me more sensitive to making sure that I don't repeat those mistakes as a man. You know what I mean? I I understand what it's like to feel excluded, to not feel like you're the default. Um, I understand what it feels like from, from a black perspective, but from a male perspective, I feel included every day. I feel catered to, I feel talked to, I feel served, you know, I, I feel served by, you know, all the major companies who were trying to, you know, get my services. Um, it, you know, part of that might, you know, be I, I watch a lot of sports, but the point <laughs> is, I, I definitely feel like someone's hearing me as a guy every day. Right. I don't ever feel like as a guy, oh, man, you know, I just I just wish someone would hear my perspective. I mean, man, you know, now, as you know, of course, when you, you, you consider intersectionality, you have to think about all, how all the different systems play upon each other. You, you have to think about how racism affects misogyny. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I see a lot of black men doing things, you know, and saying things that if you flipped it from gender to race, you know, they would feel discriminated against and they would feel opposed or they would feel, uh, you know, not seen or erased. 
And so I just think that like, you know, it just doesn't require that much energy or cognitive ability to take a second to consider someone else's perspective and how a particular phrase or, you know, you know, argument may come across to someone else and, and consider who people are internally. I mean, I was thinking about this a lot last night because I was reading um, the Moira Donegan letter, um, the essay that was in the cut revealing mm-hmm. that she was the person who set up the shitty media men list. And one of the things that she, that she wrote really struck me. And it's just that, you know, you know, now, you know, men are being forced to understand the interiority of women, you know, the, the, like what, what is, what is, what is, what is happening in their lives? What is happening from their perspective? What life is like through their lens. And I think that if, 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 if more men didn't require the me too moment to have that happen, to, to, to come to that realization, I think we'd be a lot further along. I think you're right. I, and I also almost feel like uh, we need to coin uh, for Will in Los Angeles an uh, analog to a microaggression, which is like a micro justice, maybe mm. um, like a little thing that you can do to make the world a little more fair. Uh, I think I think that might yeah micro justice, <laughs> which maybe works. leads to some macro changes. Let's yes, hope. yes, little micro justice in your day. Thank you so much, yeah, of and um, we'll have you on again soon. All right, thanks a lot, my friend. And that is it for the show. Thank you, super fans, for making it all the way in. I will once again implore you, please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Last week, I had a couple words about New Year's resolutions and the importance of celebrating one's recommitment to things rather than beating yourself up for falling off of a commitment. I made a commitment uh, for 2018 to be more bold in the ways that I allow myself to celebrate things that I have done. I think that is in general something that a lot of women could could probably celebrate more often. Uh, Historically, culturally, we tend to have trouble doing that. So I want to invite everyone who's listening to celebrate themselves in some way today, to claim a victory that you had, to talk to someone about something that you did that you're proud of. I will start. I love doing this show, and I think this show is pretty damn good. I hope you do too. One of the reasons I love doing it is talking to you guys. So go out, celebrate yourself. Eh, Maybe celebrate someone else too. See you next week.